Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Here we go now with Back to School in BC and one of the eternal debates in our province. Should the BC government finance private schools. Earlier this week, BC Education Minister Jennifer Whiteside announced new funding to cover back-to-school costs for things like back-to-school supplies and money for school field trips. It included $3.8 million for private schools. Now, we've got an awesome panel standing by to debate this right now. It's part of our special back-to-school coverage on CKNW this week. So, Tim, go ahead and hit it here. We promise not to assign any homework. This is your back-to-school coverage on The Mike Smith Show. All right. Here we go with our back-to-school debate now. And should the government be funding private schools in B.C.? What a great panel we've got for you to discuss this. Peter Fassbender on the line, the former Liberal Minister of Education in British Columbia. Peter, thank you for coming on today. Well, thank you for having me, Mike. Uh, this, as you said, has been an eternal debate. And uh, Patty Backus and I sparred on this uh, many times when I was minister. Okay, well, we're going to do the rematch here right now. We've got Patty Backus on the line, education columnist at the Georgia Strait. She is the former chair of the Vancouver School Board. Patty, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me. And hello, okay. Peter. It's been a while. Okay, okay guys, <laughs> thank, thank you. Thank you to both of you for being here. Uh, Patty, let me go to you first. We talked a bit about this yesterday on the show. What is your, give me your take on government funding of private schools, independent schools as they're known here in British Columbia. Why are you opposed to that? Well, I believe that uh, public funds should only go into democratically governed public schools and that I, as a taxpayer, object to my money going to fund schools that in many cases discriminate. Uh, Many cases are not democratically governed. Some don't even follow human rights legislation. And at the same time, as our public schools are really struggling financially to balance their budgets and losing programs, and many private schools have all of those programs and more. So I would like to see private schools rely on private funding and public schools receive the public funding. Okay. Peter Fassbender, what do you say to that? Well, Mike, uh, you know, I've heard this argument many times, and I think the public really needs to understand the reality of this. First and foremost, we're talking about independent schools. And within that, there are two categories. There's the group one, which receive up to 50%, and group two that receive up to 30%. What the public needs to know is that every one of the parents who send their children to an independent school pay 100% of their property tax to schools. So in effect, what happens, Mike, is that 50% maximum goes back to the independent school, the other 50% goes to the public system where the students that represent that money are not in the public schools. So it's actually a benefit to the public mm. system because they get 50% 
for students that aren't even there. Patty. Well, that's, that's a part of the picture. It's not just property tax that pays for education, by the way. That's about a third of the education budget. The best co- rest comes from provincial revenue, general revenue. We all, pay, we all pay taxes. I don't have kids in school. I haven't had kids in school for probably a decade now. We all pay taxes. I object to my taxes supporting private education. The savings don't, it's not just about the 50%. There are significant tax deductions that private schools can take advantage of, uh, particularly religious, faith-based schools, can uh, give uh, tax receipts out for tuition. Almost all of the major independent or private schools have charitable foundations. Some of them collect millions of dollars a year in tax-deductible donations from parents. So that reduces the amount of revenue going to the provincial treasury that's then available to fund education. So I would say the costs are much greater to the taxpayer than just that tuition top-up that we're seeing through the uh, or the direct funding, as we saw this week from the ministry. Peter Fassbender, what do you say to that? Well, well, I think, again, Mike, it is taking the reality and distorting it somewhat. What, again, we need to remember is that independent schools are highly regulated by the Ministry of Education. They have to follow the BC curriculum. They're inspected on an ongoing basis. And they have to meet all of the criteria. So they are regulated by the province of British Columbia. The other thing is that, yes, indeed, people who choose, and this is the big issue. I have always been a supporter of choice for parents. And if parents choose to send their children to an independent school, then they deserve to be supported in the curriculum and all of these other things. However, They choose also to drive their children, in a lot of cases, long distances to go to the school of their choice. They also, and I think this is a big issue, the independent system does not receive a penny of capital dollars. And, you know, let's remember, if we were to cancel the funding, I believe that the majority of people who choose independent schools would be faced with a decision to send their children to the public system. And all of a sudden, we've got about one-third of the total population that is going to be going back into the public system, and that has to be accommodated with more space and all of those other issues. Right. Patty, what do you say to that? Because I hear that argument frequently that I guess there's a perception that these independent schools are for the richest of the rich people out there. But if you think about some of the smaller independent schools, a lot of them are decisions made by parents to send their kid. Maybe they got a special needs child and they feel they can get uh, better service in a smaller independent school. But if they didn't have that option, they would likely have to send their child to a a public school where taxpayers would pay 100% of the cost. So how is that not a good deal for taxpayers? Well, for one, you know, Peter talks about a choice and I'm all for choice. Parents can have the choice to opt out of the public system. I may make a choice to opt out of going to my community center to work out and go to a private club. Do I expect the taxpayer to support that? No. Uh, I may choose to drive a private vehicle instead of using public transit. Should I get a tax exemption from, from paying for transit? No. So these are private choices that people want to opt out of the system for whatever reasons. Uh, that's their choice. No one is taking that choice away. What we're saying is that should not be publicly subsidized. 
particularly right. when we know that in many cases, these are schools that uh, cater to the very wealthy, or in other cases, they practice religious discrimination or gender discrimination, or even discrimination based on intellectual ability. There are schools that will not take students that have significant learning needs. So I draw the line at my, my money, my tax right. dollars and your tax dollars subsidizing uh, schools that are a personal choice and not democratically governed uh, like our public schools are. Okay, Peter, quick reply there, and then we'll fit a break in here. Sure. I, and, Mike, education is a fundamental right, one of the most important elements of our society. Every child deserves the best education possible. Every parent deserves the right to send their children to a school where they believe they will receive that. And drawing the analogy with fitness centers and driving your car or taking public transit is specious at best. All right, welcome back. Talking back to school, and we're debating public funding of private schools. Former Education Minister Peter Fassbender, former Vancouver School Board Chair Patty Backus, your calls. We have lots of calls here. Steve calling from the West End. Hi, Steve, go ahead. Hey, Mike, two points. Um, we have to remember that private schools, although they have to comply with provincial regulations and whatnot, they are a business. And it's a situation where once we have public funds going into a private business, it gets a little dubious. I used to be a financial advisor at at one time, and it's a situation where as long as I worked within the confines of the provincial law and the Securities Commission, I I had certainly my my choice and, and to work with certain clients that were most appropriate. So when words like discrimination were thrown around, you know what? there's a certain range where people work better within a certain system. And I, I think those two ideas of, of discrimination, which has a bit of an odious tone to it, as well as understanding these are private businesses need to be contextualized a bit to make decisions, but no, okay. I don't support it. I don't support it. You, you don't support the public funding of the schools. P- Peter Fassbender, go ahead. Your thoughts. Yeah, Mike, I, I appreciate what this gentleman is saying. But, you know, when, when I was education minister, I visited many independent schools. I worked with the Federation of Independent Schools, and I know how hard they worked to make sure that they delivered the best education possible. And again, remembering that, you know, the parents who make that choice, give 100% of their tax dollars to the province for schools. They receive back 50%. And yes, they raise money privately. And yes, they have to have a business case to keep the school going. And I'll guarantee you what would happen in our province if we stopped supporting the independent school system, we would find many independent schools would stop operating because they can't afford to do it, and that's why they make the business case. And it's not the same as running a private business, a commercial operation. It's about children's education and parents' right to well, they're choose. For, they're, for, they're not nonprofit, though. No, they're not nonprofit, but, right. you know, the bottom line is I visited many of them. And again, I think what the gentleman didn't refer to, and Patty hasn't, is how rigorous the inspections of independent schools are. And I can assure you that if any of those schools were in violation of the Human Rights Act and so on, 
they would be shut down and they would okay. stop receiving funding. Patty Backus. Peter, there was a case, I believe it was the Surrey Christian School a few years ago, and it was in the news media of a teacher who was, I believe, terminated because they were living common law. Um, we've had cases in faith-based schools of teachers being terminated for having uh, babies with their same-sex partner. Um, we have schools where <laughs> where religions are practiced where women can't hold, hold certain roles. Um, do you think those schools should be allowed to continue to operate with public funding? Peter? Well, again, you know, I think the reality here is we have human rights legislation in this province. We've seen uh, issues, and I can tell you, there are issues in public systems where teachers have been terminated for reasons uh, that uh, they have violated the human rights laws. What we have to do is recognize that independent schools provide a valuable service, they are well-regulated, and if there are violations, then those are dealt with. Let's go to David on the line in Abbotsford. Hi, David, go ahead. Hi there. A uh, bit of a unique perspective here. I was raised in the uh, private school system. I'm a teacher in the public system. Uh, no love for Mr. Fassbender, but that's not the issue here. Um, my grandfather actually led an independent school strike back in the 40s, which probably... Uh, contributed a lot to this. It was due to the fact that the idea that people were paying taxes didn't get the benefits if they were going to a uh, private school. And during that year or two when the strike was on, it rained chaos in the public system. There was actually up to three shifts of schooling being done and my uncles and aunts being bused, you know, an hour or two just to get their education. So while I appreciate Ms. Backus and her defense of, you know, human rights, and I am all for that, I understand the chaos that it would cause if we didn't fund the private schools at all. I think subsidizing them to a point does make sense. But when you hear additional funding, additional funding, additional funding, it sounds like they're getting more than their share. So I would be uh, all for a cap, but I think they do serve a bit of a purpose. Okay, thank you for your call. We just got two minutes left here, guys. Patty, I'll go to you for your response there. Go ahead. Well, we, we're now spending up to uh, approximately half a billion dollars a year in, in, in public funding is going into private schools. Um, I attended a private school myself in the early 1970s before they had public funding. That school still exists. I believe schools would continue. There would be, certainly be some students moving from the independent to public. However, I don't think that would cause the kinds of level of problems that, that some would want you to believe. One of the biggest challenges I faced as a Vancouver school trustee was the financial impact of declining enrollment, which affected our funding. And we got pressure from Mr. Fassbender's government to close schools. Uh, so there's space in the public schools, particularly in Vancouver. I think it would be uh, to have a bunch of kids from families that are where they're well supported at home and education is supported would probably not have the same financial impact that some would expect. And in fact, could, okay. could be about even. Okay, Peter, we just got a minute left. We'll get the, give you the last word here. Go ahead. Well, well, thank you, Mike, and I appreciate the debate. The bottom line here is it's about choice. It's about quality education. It's about providing the support to the most important aspect of our society, and that's education. And I think that the public support up to 50%, recognizing that that is the cap. There is a cap already. And yeah. you know what this government did the other day in their funding to support uh, supplies and that? 
most people who go to independent schools are not the elite. They are average, everyday British Columbians who want the best for their children. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the rise of random, unprovoked assaults and violence on the streets of Vancouver. The chronic repeat offenders tying up our court system, system, causing so many of the problems we're seeing. Gang violence. How can we steer kids away from gangs? We've got a terrific panel of professionals standing by to discuss these important issues. First, have a listen to this here now. This is from a show last week. I spoke to Howard Chow, the deputy chief of the Vancouver Police Department. We talked about the situation on Hastings Street with the sprawling tent city down there, the rise in random unprovoked violence on the streets of Vancouver. Here's what he had to say to me. I've been a police officer for 33 years in the city, and I'd say it's probably the worst worst I've seen. Um, and I think it's uh, so many... You know, a combination of so many issues that are going on down there. Um, you know, we've got, uh, uh, you know, if you get some individuals that are painting it as a life of ease down there, it's not. We're dealing with over 80 plus assaults that have taken place in the last six weeks in that three and a half, four block area. Okay, that was Deputy Police Chief Howard Chow on last week's show. All right, let's discuss this now with our panel. Uh, both our guests are active with Odd Squad Productions, which does an awesome job in steering kids away from gangs. Dr. Bill McEwen on the line. Bill is one of the leading experts on mental health and addiction, especially in the downtown east side. He is with the Odd Squad Productions. Very pleased to welcome him. Bill, thank you very much for coming on today. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having us on. You bet. Also on the line is Toby Hinton, retired sergeant. He's a co-founder of Odd Squad Productions. Toby, thank you for being here. Mike, thank you for having us. Okay, gentlemen, thank you to both of you for being here. Hey, Toby, let me go to you first. When you hear Howard Chow, the deputy police chief there, talk about the situation in Vancouver right now. He's been a police officer for 33 years, says he hasn't seen it this bad in his, his entire career. I'm hearing that from a lot of people, that what we're seeing in the city right now is the worst we've ever seen. Do you agree with that assessment? Uh, without a doubt, I spent 25 years working as a cop and then a sergeant in the uh, downtown east side. So I know the area fairly well. I mean, we were motivated to start on prevention and education because we thought the situation was out of control in 1997. Uh, and to put it in perspective, at that time, there was maybe uh, one overdose death a day in the province of B.C. And we're um, what we're seeing... Um, uh, now makes that pale in comparison. So it's, um, uh, we didn't anticipate it to, to get this bad. There's a number of reasons for it, but uh, the level of violence, public disorder, um, crime, criminality, and um, uh, uh, just uh, reckless um, uh, issues uh, yeah. that, that exist down there uh, is, is worse than I, I, we could have ever imagined. What do, you, what do you think is one of the main drivers of that, that change? And would you say it's the, the toxicity of the drugs that are on the streets right now? I mean, back in those days, I guess, fentanyl just wasn't a thing, but it, it certainly is right now, and it's killing a lot of people. Uh, I think, uh, uh, obviously, with mortality, uh, the toxicity of the drugs is an issue. 
I think there's a convergence of a number of different issues, and the issues you're seeing on the street are also often mirrored inside rooming houses as well, too. That's the part that people don't see. So there's some anchoring, there's some entrenchment, and there's some uh, issues around uh, priorities, in my opinion. And this is my personal opinion, but I think if you're going to seriously talk about fixing the housing problem and dealing with the people that are currently unhoused down there, you need to reverse engineer that and start looking at the drug and the mental health issues there. And I think uh, civic politicians have some responsibility for what's happening there. Okay, speaking of drugs and mental health on our our streets, let's talk to Dr. Bill McEwen. He's the president of Odd Squad Productions. And I know, Bill, you've done a lot of work in this issue, especially in the downtown east side, right? Oh, yeah, I've been down there for the last 20 years. Um, yeah. Uh, that's where I met Toby and uh, became part of Odd Squad. Um, right. Uh, working down there. What What's your perspective, like your street-level perspective, when you're looking at the changes in the neighborhood and in the situation we're faced right now? Do, do you think it's the worst that you've ever seen? Oh, it's definitely uh, the the situation in the downtown east side. It's, it's not different from other cities, but it's, in, uh, it's a very focused area, and so it comes across very intensely. Um I mean, and that's part of the reason I work with Odd Squad is they, you know, our credo is uh, prevention rather than, than healing uh, because the things you want to try and do is to prevent situations uh, like this from happening and helping people before they get into that, sp- that state. And that's, that's exactly what we're trying to do with Odd Squad. Right. And when you see the situation on the, on the downtown east side, what do you think are some of the answers here? I mean, we've got that sprawling tent city on Hastings Street that's, still there a month after the fire chief had ordered all the tents and structures to be removed. I mean, it shows how difficult the situation is. Do you think housing is a big part of it? Well, I, I think all of us would agree. I mean, and I wouldn't pretend I'm an expert on this. But, uh, again, the part that we're trying to deal with is the prevention aspects of it. The, uh, yeah. uh, the getting the other, all the other groups, the city, the, the uh, BPD, the province, all together to try and have a unified direction, I would highly support I wouldn't pretend that I could give them the advice as to what, how they deploy their resources. Though. Speaking of Dr. Bill McCune, Toby Hinton, retired sergeant with VPD, where they are with Odd Squad Productions, which does a great job helping kids steer away from lives of crime. Hey, Toby, we talked earlier a little bit about the revolving door justice system we see on the streets in Vancouver right now. You know, you hear these stories about people who literally have hundreds and hundreds of police contacts and just arrested, released, and reoffend, and then it's rinse and repeat after that. As a former police officer, what do you think of that? Well, I think we need, um, obviously, to uh, pay attention uh, to the the uh, criminality as- aspect uh, for the public disorder, the crime, the stranger assaults, and everything else. But you will find with a lot of those repeat offenders, there's some serious mental health issues uh um in, in underlying uh that criminality as well too so um uh it, it's a complicated and, and uh, tricky problem but uh if you're if you're constantly putting people out uh that are uh, victimizing and uh, creating harm to the community then uh that has to be addressed that needs to be fixed and Sometimes the safest time out, unfortunately, is jail and uh, uh, that uh, people can clean up, uh, get a little bit better 
and uh, uh, we look for um, some rehabilitation and treatment from that aspect. But you need to separate people from uh, the uh, cycle of drug use, drug addiction, and it's easy to be an addict in the downtown east side. Uh, it's a hard place to recover in. Uh, so. It's a tricky situation. We we got into this because uh, we were frustrated after about 10 years of being beat cops in the area and seeing younger people come in. And we wanted to make sure that uh, we at least left a strong prevention message for youth, and that, that started us on the Odd Squad journey. And, and uh, I find it, I find honestly, I find it very frustrating to talk about politics related to the downtown east side, having worked there for 25 years, having um, experienced that uh, inordinate amount of money being dumped into the area and uh, uh, progress uh, only coming in uh, bits and spurts. But uh, I, uh, uh, I, I find that if we channel our energy and look back to the next generation and help uh, younger people, that that is probably the best solution that we're going to have but it's a 10-year it's a 15-year investment we got to put time in and it's also therapeutic for law enforcement officers that are involved in on squad too because they're doing constructive work with youth they're uh, doing prevention and education work which uh, kind of sheds all the uh, toxic uh, politics around uh, what's happening in the downtown east side Mm -hmm. All right, welcome back to the show, talking about Odd Squad Productions and their work to help keep kids out of a life of crime. We're talking about the chronic offenders, the repeat offenders, the situation in the downtown east side. We got my guest, Dr. Bill McEwen, retired Sergeant Toby Hinton. John Daly joins us now, former Global BC crime reporter. He's a member of the board at Odd Squad. Hey, John. A real pleasure, Mike. Hey, John, thanks a lot for coming on. Tell me about Odd Squad Productions and your thoughts on the work going on there. Well, I'll tell you, Mike, you know, it's nice to have hope. <clears throat> People really need hope. And I tell, and when you look at the, the opioid crisis, the overdose crisis, uh, the gang situation, all of the people getting shot, doesn't matter whether it's Vancouver, Surrey, North End, Coquitlam, it's insane. And... One of the things that gives me hope, and I frankly, I think, uh, gives the parents uh, whose kids are being helped by uh, Odd Squad hope and gives the kids themselves hope, is is the programs, the, 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 the education. Most kids will make good choices given the right information. That's the basic yeah. thesis of this thing. And that's what the Odd Squad does. And the videos are brilliant. The peer-to-peer presentations are great. You know, the, the all of the work that the Odd Squad does is wonderful. Toby took a bunch of kids on a, a massive uh, out-of-town trip recently. It was just incredible. Like, in building this kind of self-worth, self-value, and the ability to make good decisions with good information and knowing where to get support if they need it. That's what the Odd Squad's about. Okay. Retired Sergeant Toby Hinton, can you pick up a little bit on that? You're the co-founder of Odd Squad Productions. Tell me a little bit about the work there. Okay. Uh, Yeah, thanks, Mike, and thanks, John. Um, We we started in 1997 wanting to make a short educational film that morphed into Through a Blue Lens, which was picked up and co-produced by the National Film Board. And it went around the world and it helped us get our start. Uh, and uh, since that time, uh, we ended up getting a production studio from Henderson Development and uh, and uh, decided that we were going to uh, go on three paths, peer-to-peer, 
film and presentation, just educate kids. And uh, we did that for 20 years. We've done in-person presentations along the way for 250,000 kids, over 250,000 kids across Canada, including into the Arctic. We picked up Doug Spencer, who's been on your show numerous times, on the gang component because it was a nice dovetail with what we were doing. And uh, fast forward to now, we're, uh, we took over a warehouse in Burnaby. We've transferred our headquarters out of Vancouver, and uh, we're, we have a happy home in, Vancouver, or, sorry, in Burnaby, Burnaby, and we have put everything under one roof. And we added the element of physical literacy because we just don't want to do a hit-and-run presentation for kids where good cop says drugs are bad and then we're gone. We want relationships with uh, younger people. We want mentorship. We want to build resiliency skills. We want long-term partnerships because, really, this boat has to be driven by the next generation. So we're, we're here mm-hmm. to guide that. We've been around for 25 years, and the work is important. So that's where we're at now. We put uh, 15,000 hours a year of volunteer time into this organization. We have put $350,000 into this warehouse, and we put $80,000 of our own money, which I'm happy to report we just paid off today, uh, into hey. the building. <laughs> and we have a state-of-the-art training floor inside here, film studios, a presentation room, and uh, now uh, a tool room. So we invite anybody to come by and see our facility, and if you're having trouble with youth uh, or kids or family members, just uh, drop by. We're we're open seven days a week here. Okay, I congratulate you guys on the work that you're doing. Let me go back to Dr. Bill McEwen there. Bill, you've done so much work with around drug addiction in the downtown east side. How important do you think is is prevention in trying to stem the tide of what we're seeing here. I mean, we're seeing record numbers of overdose deaths in the province right now. Can you get a message out to kids about like the dangers of drugs and, and prevent and hopefully prevent kids from getting into a life of drug use? Your thoughts? Oh, I, I think uh, the idea of prevention is uh, key to all of this. And I think you're right. There's a number of components of it. As John mentioned, <clears throat> and John being the past president and been a big factor in Odd Squad for many years, uh, talking about the idea of you give people information, youth information, you're not telling them what to do. You're saying, here's, here's the options. Here's what's going on. But then, as Toby mentioned, you mentor individuals. So they, through the physical literacy stuff I'll, I'll, on that side, I'll stick with that, um, taking them out into wilderness camps, which we've been doing, uh, having uh, judo programs, which are in the downtown east side mm-hmm. as well as in uh, Burnaby. And you give them uh, a sense of, of, um, of uh, worth. You give them a sense of, I've, I'm able to do these things. And you, and you give them that sense of self-respect, which they can take the, now the information you've said around drugs and go, yeah, I can do this. This is a better way to do it. And we particularly try and focus with youth that are at risk. And so you're getting programs where youth aren't getting into any other programs except ours, and then we start them on, and we start moving along with it. And so I agree, prevention is a huge element of this, and we're, I think, becoming a key component to helping that. Okay, guys, we just have a minute left. Let me go back to John Daly. John, despite what you you guys have just described here and the importance of that kind of prevention element, which I... I applaud you for, for the work you're doing. We seem to be, though, it seems to be getting worse, right? Well, like, do we, do we mean, need more? Go ahead. Yeah, we definitely need more. And yeah. I think the Odd Squad is, is one critical uh, organization doing great work. But, yeah, obviously we need more. And, and you know, frankly, uh, we need 
we the odd squad itself needs to expand and we've got this win a barracuda thing uh com. you can win a uh a plymouth barracuda and 50 percent of that money is going to go to support the odd squad you can't beat it i mean 100 percent of the money will go to support the odd squad and that was doted this car is a phenomenal car and it was donated to us by ktl transport and it's been built up you you got to see it man it's incredible All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the police crackdown now on distracted driving. If you are behind the wheel of your vehicle right now, the police want you to know, do not even think about touching that cell phone. They are coming to get you. It is a crackdown on distracted driving coming up in the month of September. And by the way, if you get caught distracted driving... The fine here is no peanuts. $368 is the fine for distracted driving. But on top of that, you've got driver penalty points on your driving record. Now, check this out. Brand new survey from the Ipsos polling company here done for ICBC. It says that that distracted driving is on the rise it says 73 percent of respondents know they know it's very it's very likely they can get caught if they're using their phone behind the wheel but despite that more people are doing it so according to this survey now 43 percent of drivers admit to using their phone at least once out of every 10 trips they make in their vehicle 43 percent that is up dramatically by 33% over the last three years. That's according to this new Ipsos survey. The police want you to know they're out to get you if you are distracted driving. I, Grant, I got Grant got Getrue standing by here. First, have a listen to this ad from BC's police. Have a listen. Smiley face emoji posters, map checkers, phone call makers, swipers, likers, and status updaters. We see you. Bumper to bumper, at a red light, just waiting your turn at a four-way stop? We see you. Because your cell phone hiding antics aren't a match for our tactics. New tools, new techniques, new ways to catch distracted drivers. Okay, let's discuss this now with my guest, Grant Gottkatru. Grant is a former traffic police officer. He is now a consultant, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Grant, thanks a lot for coming on today. Mike, always a pleasure. Okay, likewise, thank you for doing this. So let's talk about uh, the crackdown on distracted driving. Do any of those, those numbers in that survey surprise you that this survey from Ipsos indicates that more people are distracted driving right now or using their phone behind the wheel? Well, we have to be careful here because um, the ICBC and Safe BC um, Uh, define distracted driving in a particular way. When we think about distracted driving, we all think cell phones because that's what we're programmed. But the definition of distracted driving by the province encompasses four areas. Um, Driver inattentiveness, internal distractions, external distractions, and the use of an electronic device. So... When they say distracted driving, it covers everything that could take the attention away from the driver. The problem is um, that the fatality numbers for actually using a cell phone are minuscule. And if they just focused on that, then no one would go, well, what What are you talking about? 
those numbers are minuscule, which they are, because hmm. um, I've got uh, I got a, a, a FOI from the BC Coroner Service, and of course the law came out in 2010, so the law has been on the books for 12 years now, right? Yeah, yeah. So so in 20, and this is just electronic device fatals. 20 in the province of BC, 2010 four, 2011 one, 2012 four. 2013 4, 2014 0, 2015 1, and 2016 0. And I highly doubt the numbers have changed since that time. So hmm. people need to remember that when the province and the police are talking about distracted driving, yeah. it's not just cell phones. It's looking at the sunset when you're going over Lionsgate Bridge and rear ending somebody or adjusting one of the 50 distractions you have on your dashboard or reaching around to yell at your kids in the back of the car or whatnot. So that's the, we just have to remember that part. Distracted driving Uh, is not just cell phones. And you can tell by the numbers, that's why, because if they said, Oh, cell phones and people would go, well, those numbers are minuscule, which they are. Okay. But they're minuscule. Those are some interesting numbers for sure. Speaking to Grant Gutgetru, he's a former traffic police officer. Okay. Grant, let's talk about the the sting operation that ICBC and police set up in in Delta yesterday. Now, I find this very interesting. ICBC, working with police yesterday in Delta, set up what they called like a mock construction site. So it was not like a real construction site. It was like a fake construction site where traffic was slowing down. And this was done as part of the kickoff to Distracted Driving Awareness Month, and it was like a media event. So it was designed to show the public just how many people are using their phone when they're stopped or they got to slow down at something like a, a construction site. Police wrote up tickets against drivers who use their phone at this fake construction site to show awareness of how many people are using their phone. Grant, what do you think of that? Do you think that's... Do you think that's fair to drivers to set up a set up a mock construction site to catch distracted drivers, even if it's just a one day publicity event? Well, I think um, uh, creativity and traffic enforcement is nothing new, obviously. Um, but really, at the end of the day, what, what did it what did it show that we already didn't already know? Everyone, we're all slaves to our, our electronic devices. Every day when I'm out driving, I see someone using their phone, either at a red light or, you know, up at their ear when they're driving. We all see it. We're slaves to our electronic devices. Um, and um, so in this particular case, I mean, how many vehicles were checked versus how many tickets were given, right? You want those numbers. Plus, really, at the end of the day, the, the poll already showed that everyone does it. Does that mean it's right? Well, of course not, but everyone does it. And, and, and the, the fatality rates are so low uh, that it, 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 it's, it's not even in the same ballpark as impaired driving deaths and speed-related deaths. Not even in the same ballpark. Do you what think... Was funny, yeah. oh, sorry, what was funny, when I was at the Integrated Road Safety Unit, which is a traffic enforcement unit, yeah. they... they um, opposed us, the bosses opposed us doing speed enforcement. They didn't want us doing speed enforcement, which blew my mind because that's still the number one killer 
uh, in Canada, but they didn't want us focusing on speed offenses, which was ridiculous. And I even had one of my supervisors talk to me about it, and I laughed in his face. So, but go ahead. With your point there. What did what did they want you focused on instead? Uh, cell phones. <laughs> cell phones. Yeah. Yeah. Sure. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Distract, sure, distracted driving with touching the cell phone. Do you, do you therefore, Grant, think that the penalty for distracted driving in British Columbia is is fair or, or not? I mean, if you look at like $368 ticket plus four driver penalty points, is that fair given that a lot of drivers, I'm sure, are being ticketed for looking at their phone while they're stopped at a red light, for example? Well, my belief is if you're stationary and you and you pick up your phone, you should get the fine, but not the points, because you're not moving. If you're moving, then fine, get the points. Because at the end of the day, if you're still getting, if you're still using your cell phone today, twelve years after the fact, the law came in, you're an idiot, right? <laughs> but but people are going to continue to do what they want as long as they have free will. I mean, the penalty for murder is life in prison, but people still commit murders, right? So. Nothing you do for a penalty for touching your phone is going to change people's behavior. It might change some, but I mean, how many excessive speed impounds did I do? Right. I did over 2000. Did I change? Uh, Are there still excessive speeds? Of course. It doesn't change anybody's, uh, it may may change some, but certainly not the majority. And, uh, you know, so cell phones, like I said, we're stuck with them. All right. Welcome back as we continue talking about the police crackdown on distracted driving. My guest is Grant Gottkatru. Grant is a former traffic cop. He's now a forensic consultant. Lots of calls on the open line on this one. Garth and Ladner. Hi, Garth. Go ahead. I agree with your guest, but I think what they should do is use those resources to crack down on the trucking companies and the truck drivers. They're the ones causing the mayhem right now. In what way would you say? Well, how many overpasses have they hit? How many head-on <laughs> yeah. collisions? I mean, how many stalls? How many? Like they're the ones causing huge problems. Okay, Grant, do you agree with that? Yes. <laughs> In a short answer, yes. And gee, they really have to stay out of the left lane on Highway One through Abbotsford and uh, Chilliwack. They're awful. Yeah, and they've got to start uh, stop slamming into those uh, highway uh, bridges and underpasses. Underpasses too. I, I do not get that one at all. Let's go to James on the line of White Rock. Hi, James. Hi. Uh, thanks for taking my call. I'm just wanting to know from him at what point does all this constitute entrapment when they're putting up false precedents to catch people doing things wrong? Okay, that's an interesting question. So, police and ICBC yesterday did set up this fake construction site in Delta to sort of demonstrate how many distracted drivers there are out there. It was a one-day publicity thing, and they did write up a bunch of tickets. I asked ICBC this morning how many tickets they did write at this fake construction site. They did not know the answer to that for me this morning. But Grant, what do you think? Is that entrapment? Well, technically, no. I mean, if the police, if, if a construction worker police officer posing as a construction worker came up to you and said, um, can you show me your phone? And then you, and then you pick it up and then they write you. Yes. Uh, but if they're dressed, even they used to, we used to dress up as homeless in, in, <laughs> in the, you know, the, the, the beggars in the intersections and, and, and get you that way too. So it's not entrapment, it's creativity, but unless they're compelling you to use your phone, it's not uh, entrapment. 
Okay, Philip in South Surrey. Hi, Philip. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. Um, I, I called you on my cell phone using my voice. I asked Siri to uh, connect me with CKNW, and when I get a text or an email, I say, Siri, can you tell, read me the latest text message? I don't even. I don't know why people are touching their phones. We have all this technology. We don't even have to touch it. We don't have to look at it. Just talk to it. You can do that. You can tell Surrey to read your text message to you. Absolutely, and my emails. Oh, why didn't somebody tell me this? I mean, <laughs> the, the, the day I, the day I realized that I could control uh, my phone with my voice, I thought, yeah. God, if I had if I had one of these when I was younger, I, everybody'd be working for me now. Yeah. Okay, thank you for that, Philip. Like, I knew you can you can tell Siri to make a phone call. Like, I do that all the time. Like, I'll say, you know, Siri, Siri, call my wife or whatever on on vo- on the speakerphone. But I didn't know you could. If you got a text message, you could say, "Hey Siri, read back that text message to me." Well, people tell me these things. I know these things. Let's well, go to he's, t- but, yeah. but he's go absolutely ahead. right. He's right. Yeah, he's right. Like a lot of this. Yeah. And by the way, that is that that's not illegal, right? Like if you. Nope. If it's totally hands-free, you can do hands-free while you're driving. Correct. Yeah, okay. Dave in White Rock. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hey, right on. This is a, uh, a White Rock show today. Okay, so I'm just yeah. going to make two comments, and I'm going to hang up and see what you guys have to say. Um, number one, when I see the police, and I'm not against the police or anything, by the way, so when I see the police hiding in the trees or behind the A&W sign, and they jump out and then start walking around and stuff, it makes me so upset because I feel in my, my heart, it's like, why aren't you guys out, like, catching, like, gangsters and all that stuff? Why are you waiting for somebody to push the like button? That's one thing. I, like, I think they should just make a campaign and say, these police are... This, this is all they do, man, is catch on your phone. The other thing is, why don't we go the other way? And why don't you just make it part of your driving test? Because I know that some people have to use their phones and stuff, but why not just be good enough at it that you can actually drive around and use your phone? Okay, thanks, guys. Oh, okay, okay, thank you for the call. Well, let's take the first part of his question there, Grant. Like, when you're doing the undercover stuff, when like when you said you'd pose as a homeless person at an intersection and then nab people for distracted driving, like... What kind of reaction would you get from drivers? Would they be mad about that? Uh, more shocked. Uh, but <laughs> the reality is, and what he was saying uh, about catching gangsters and all that stuff, there are um, designated units that focus on those offenses. When you're in traffic, when you're assigned to traffic, your job is to do traffic enforcement. And I actually had a motorist say that to me years ago. Um, why aren't you out there catching the... Uh, the murderers, and I looked at my watch and I said, they're not up yet. Because what else am I going to say, right? Uh, my, when you're in traffic, you do, dr- you do traffic. When you're in the drug squad, you do drug enforcement. That's what you do. So yeah. there are those members that um, target the gangsters specifically. Right. Integrated, the Integrated Gang Task Force, for example. Right. So. Grant, thank you. thank you for coming on today. As always, it's my pleasure. I just wanted to emphasize that the the use of the cell phone is illegal, but it's not the three-headed monster that the government is trying to make it out to be. All right, let's talk about the shortage of ambulance paramedics in our province now, the slow response times to get an ambulance, and some of the tragic stories we're hearing now, including this heartbreaking case in Barrier, B.C., the reported death of an infant while waiting for an ambulance. 
This disturbing case, now the subject of an internal investigation by BC Emergency Health Services. I've got Barrier Mayor Ward Stamer standing by, but first, have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Kristen Robinson. I just can't fathom how this can happen in today's world. Global News has learned a child under 12 months old went into cardiac arrest in Barrier Thursday. An ambulance was called and the union says there was a delayed response. The infant did not survive. In this situation, any delay in a critical situation like this is fundamentally wrong. BC Emergency Health Services is reviewing the call but refused to say how long the response time was or explain the reason for the delay. All right, that report there from Global News. You heard the voice of Troy Clifford in there, the president of the paramedics union. An investigation now underway into this case. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Ward Stamer. Ward is the mayor of Barrier, B.C., and I'm pleased to welcome him. Ward, thank you for coming on today. You're welcome. Good morning, Mike. Okay, good morning to you. First of all, my sympathies to the people in your town with this um, this, this, uh, this, this news is difficult to take. Uh, let's talk a little bit about it. What, what can you say about this case? Like, what do you, what have you been told as the mayor here about the death of this infant? Well, yes, thanks again for that, Mike. Yeah, it is a tragic, uh, circumstance for our community and communities all through BC when we're faced with the shortages that we're having. And again, I don't want to speculate on whether the uh, delayed reaction from the BC Ammon service was a contributing factor in, in this situation, but again, our community is no different than a lot of other communities throughout BC where we're having issues with, with the cardiac arrest and, you know, other people having to do CPR instead of the BC Ambulance Service. Or, you know, we had a stroke victim a couple of weeks ago where they had to put uh, the, the mother uh, into the car because there was no BC Ambulance. The uh, car got, the pickup got pulled over for speeding in Hefley Creek about halfway to the hospital. RCMP asked them what they were doing. They said, well, my, my mom's having a stroke. The officer put the lights and sirens on and escorted them to the hospital. So we're not the only community that are having these gaps in service. Yeah. Yeah, can you tell me a little bit about the service levels in in Barrier? Uh, There is an ambulance depot there, correct? Correct. And as a reminder, Mike, you know, we're sharing the resource, and it's not like you've got an ambulance sitting there all the time just waiting for a call because the ambulances are in transit all the time. There could be another call half an hour ago where the ambulance has gone to Kamloops and it's on its way back. Well, we may be covering a bit for, for Clearwater and splitting the difference between Clearwater and Barrier, and it's in Littleport. So it's not always sitting there, but at the same time, we don't expect them to take, you know, a fully staffed ambulance like we had on Thursday night and and send it to Camels because Camels had deficiencies in what they had for service. They shouldn't be allowed to do that. Yeah, and that appears perhaps what happened here is there may have been a situation where the ambulance was dispatched to Kamloops instead. And let's have a listen to Troy Clifford here, the president of the paramedics union, speaking to Global News on that precise point here. Let's listen. From what I understand is reported on this day is that they were uh, called into Kamloops to assist with calls and uh, coverage in Kamloops as opposed to staying in Barrier to make sure they had coverage there. Yeah. How far, how, how far apart are Kamloops and Barrier Ward? Well, we're about uh, 60 kilometers, just under around 60 kilometers. So with all the lights flying, you could be from barrier to the hospital in about 30, 35 minutes. About the same as some of the outer reaches of the municipality of Kamloops, Barnard Vale, River Shore Golf Course, Sun Peaks. You know, they're further than we are, and that's approximately what time it is. Like to yeah. Get there. 
Yeah. yeah so like the other 30... thing I'd like to add too, Mike, is that yep. our first responders uh, were able to attend uh, that that uh, incident. And I know that uh, Premier Horgan made an announcement last night about a significant investment in rural and remote ambulances services. I just want to make sure that people, your listeners, know there's a distinction, a difference between an urban first responder and a rural first responder. An urban first responder is usually a full-time firefighter that responds to a traffic crash or they could you know, quite possibly attend a heart attack or something like that in the home. We don't have that. We have volunteer firefighters in our communities. So in Barrier, we have a standalone first responder unit. It's just like an ambulance, and it's and it's available if the BC Ambulance Service uh, isn't isn't able to to make those calls. It's not available all the time, but it is available. And the first responders in Barrier did respond to that call, so they were there before the ambulance um, actually got to the scene. Yeah. So who who responded? The volunteer firefighters? No, the the, oh. the first responders, and that's where the distinction is. People don't understand is that there's a difference. All of, our, all of our volunteer firefighters are mostly people that have full-time jobs that yeah. will drop what they're doing to go put out a fire. Now we're asking them to do highway rescue, which they are yeah. doing. Not all the members, but they are. And then now BC Almonds thinks that they should be calling them up to cover the gaps in their service. Well, that's not fair either. Yeah, no, this is a tough situation. Like you said, uh, your community of barrier is not alone here. I'm speaking to Ward Stamer, the mayor of Barrier, this very disturbing case about the reported death of an infant there while waiting for an ambulance is now the subject of an investigation. Like you mentioned that Kamloops is around half an hour down the highway there, Ward. You know, half an hour, man, that's life or death when you need an ambulance, right? Well, it is, and that's why I've also been pushing with the first responders because our first responders are not allowed to transport, Mike, and that's what I'm pushing for is to make some changes now because you can have an industrial uh, ambulance uh, on, a, on a side of a highway, like people have seen it before, where there's a mobile treatment center, you know, with a, with a cab on the, on, the, on the back of a pickup. And if there's an accident, you can take that patient and start traveling towards the hospital. Our first responders are not allowed to. They have to wait for the BC Ambulance Service. So we're, we're wasting precious minutes because we're waiting for that vehicle. That, our first responders should be able to start rolling towards the hospital. And if they meet critical care along the way, great. If they don't, go right up to the doors of the hospital. I don't see why we have to wait for that. Yeah, well, that certainly makes sense to me. Like, what would happen if they did take someone to the hospital? Would they get in trouble or something? Yes, yes. <laughs> really? we, we, we brought this up before, and I'm pushing, I'm pushing as hard as I can. I've been talking to Mayor Blackwell in Clearwater, and you know they, they've got as much or more serious uh, situations up there. Our emergency yeah. clinic is closed here today. Theirs is as well, but they're twice the distance to Kamloops. And when they have a patient, in most cases, they have to stabilize that patient. We are just bagging them and tagging them and getting them to the hospital as quickly as we can. So we're all in this together. Ashcroft, you know, had this situation a couple of a weeks ago where the ambulance was up in Clinton. It took 28 minutes. We still not have heard from the BC Almond Service how long it took them to get here. They won't answer our question. How has this changed over the years? Like, if you think about in past years, has the situation deteriorated in Barrier? It's, de- it's deteriorated all the way across BC. As, as I was waiting for the call, Mike, I went online and had a quick look. Back in July of 21, Mayor, Minister Dix announced that they were putting a task force together with Mr. Chu, I believe he was a uh, ex-Vancouver police officer, to try to increase the uh, response times in the BC Ambulance Service. That was over a year ago. What's happened? 
what have they learned? Well, I mean, if you talk, I know we've frequently spoke to the president of the paramedics union about this and, and others as well. And it appears to be a staffing issue, right? Like, is that what they're telling you? They've just got a shortage of paramedics. Well, there's also different levels of paramedics. And if you remember, Mike, last summer, they wanted, to, after what happened at the coast with all the uh, heat stroke uh, victims, they wanted to uh, hire more full-time uh, paramedics. But they changed some of the designations at the stations, and they went to a, a next higher level of paramedics. And what that is is a primary care paramedic instead of an EMR, which is an emergency medical responder. And we have emergency medical responders in our community. They're working part-time. They're, they're filling in full-time positions, but they decided to hire people from the coast, and that's part of the problem. They just hired a brand-new paramedic for Barrier just last week. That person isn't going to report to duty until January because she's on maternity leave. Can you believe that? Wow. Wow. Okay. Let me ask you this. Go ahead. Go ahead, Ward. No, go ahead, Mike. Sorry. Okay. Let me ask you this. There's an investigation underway now into the death, this reported death of this infant while waiting for an ambulance in in the community of Barrier. This is an investigation being done by BC Emergency Health Services. What do you hope to see come out of that investigation? Like, what questions do you think need to be answered here? Well, I think the biggest question is for them to be able to be able to sit down with us and explain where they actually are with their staffing shortages and what's causing it. And talking to Mayor Blackwell yesterday when I was on the road, uh, there's a willingness by the UBCM executive to get a mayor's caucus together with the ministry when we're down in, in Whistler in a couple of weeks to be able to sit down and see if we can come up with some short-term and long-term solutions right then, not waiting a week, a month, a year. Let's try to see if we can come up with some solutions. And part of that is, like I said, we've got a first responders uh, unit, but we can't use them to transport. So I've got a resource I can't even properly use. So that's what I'm hoping that's going to come out of all this, is a willingness to, to sit down and talk about it. Mayor Stamer, thank you for your time today. I appreciate it. Thanks very much, Mike. All right, talking about slow ambulance response times, you heard my conversation there with the mayor of Barrier, B.C. Lots of calls. Let's quickly check in with Peter Millobar, B.C. Liberal MLA. Hey, Peter. Good morning. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this. I know this community is in your riding. What are your thoughts on this investigation now into this ambulance response and the death of this infant? Well, I mean, obviously, first off, uh, deepest condolences to the family and and, uh, the whole community. It's... uh, it's a worst case scenario, and it's it's something that people have been worried about for quite some time. When you see how the the ambulances have to get shifted around quite regularly, we've had uh, two people in Ashcroft die recently as well, um, all in the same service area essentially, because Kamloops is is kind of that hub of the service. That's where the hospital is. That these people would be getting transported to and. And uh, for quite a while now, we've been pointing out that what happens in these smaller communities is, uh, because the ambulance services, when cohesive service across the province, they get pulled into Kamloops, either for a patient transport or just because Kamloops is so short of, of ambulances. And yeah. basically, they're, they're rolling the dice that one won't be needed in these communities. And so it impacts Clearwater, Chase, uh, Ashcroft, uh, Barrier, uh, you know, Cash Creek, you name it, uh, Merritt. Um, it, it's impacting a, a very large geographic area, and it really comes down to lack of ambulances. And, uh, you know, my understanding is Clearwater already knows that for the month of September, they're only staffed at 35% for their ambulance service for September, 
with an ER that perpetually is closing. So, um, you know, Barriers ER uh, services will be closed in their, their daytime hours here for, for a week. Um, yeah. and, and then you have the question around ambulance service. Uh, you know, Adrian Dix has been remarkably silent on this. Um, you know, it's, it's quite shocking to me if, if Minister Dix was to look in the mirror and ask himself what health critic Dix would have been saying about this situation, mm. Um, I think he would have to agree. It's been an abysmal failure under his watch. Let's take a couple of calls here in the open line while we can. Bill on the line in Langley. Hi, Bill. Go ahead. Hi, how are you? Um, I had an incident a couple of weeks ago. My mom had a seizure in a store in downtown Langley. Um, luckily, there was an off-duty paramedic there to assist my mom. Um, they had called me. I was there within 10 minutes. Um, I talked to the off-duty paramedic, and she had already called an ambulance. Um, my mom laid there for over 45 minutes with no wow. ambulance showing up. And finally, I got fed up of waiting in case something else should happen. So we managed to load my mom into my truck, and I raced her to Langley Memorial Hospital, which only took me about seven and a half minutes. By the time I got to Langley Memorial Hospital, there sat three ambulances. Why wow. was that? Wow. Well, is she okay? Um, she's okay. She ended up getting okay. four stitches in her head. Um, she's still laying on the couch. Um, you know, I don't know if getting her there faster would have made any difference or not. Um, I'd like to think so. I mean, it's pretty hard when you walk into something like that and you see your mother laying there on the floor bleeding and there's no, no, no help. Okay, Bill, thank you. Where's the paramedic when you need one? Thank you, Bill, for sharing that. I'm glad your mom's okay. Let me squeeze another call in here. Charlie in Vancouver. Hi, Charlie, go ahead. You got a minute here. Hi, Michael. Try to be quick here. I just kind of have a hard time listening to the headline always saying that we're short on paramedics when we're really just short on paramedic funding. There's all kinds of PCP, ACP, EMR, all trained up, all on their own dime, ready to help, willing to help. Provincial funding is the issue. It would help get it out to the rural communities if you could properly staff the municipalities. Who, who are these the people who are who, this- who are these people who are trained? Sorry. Uh, sometimes they're firefighters, sometimes they're rescue helpers, sometimes there's all kinds of people trying to get into that field. Uh, hmm. I know people that have gone to JI that have had uh, PCP and they're, you know, they're working in volunteer programs across, the, uh, across some of the rural areas. I won't name them, but uh, the, yeah, it's kind of just hard to hear when they are willing to work. The funding is just limited. Okay, thank you for that, Charlie. 30 seconds, Peter. Peter Millibar, your thoughts? Well, I mean, these stories are across the province. It's a, it's a little less pronounced in the lower mainland because of that shifting ability. But, uh, you know, again, our understanding is the ambulance service in general has about 40% vacancies at any given time across this province. Uh, the men and women are, are doing their best, but they need more help. And to hear the Premier uh, yesterday talk as if uh, they've solved things because they, they put some more money into the system is a total disconnect from reality. People don't care what the ambulance budget is when they phone an ambulance. People actually want an ambulance to show up in a timely fashion, and that's actually what counts as success, and the Premier uh, should understand that, and they need to get this fixed. Thanks for coming on. Great. Thank you.